Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. Welcome to the Really Weird Question Minisode. These episodes are a series of conversations in which we talk with people who are spreading queer joy across the internet and lifting us up as the world continues to be not great. Today's guest is Susan Stryker. That sense of the givenness of my transness, it just felt like it feels like such a gift. It's just like it is a gift from a benevolent universe that a person can be like this. So friends, we have been working to bring you these mini episodes with the superstars of trans healthcare and advocacy and history. And today we have someone with us who is sort of all of those things in one. And our very special guest for this mini episode is activist, theorist, historian, and all around amazing person, Susan Stryker. So Susan, rather than me trying to capture all of who you are in an introduction, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So, you know, first, Rebecca, you know, hi and hi, hi, Ronnie. That's <laughs> uh, really great to be on the podcast uh, about my career. Um, I don't know if you, your audience can hear the scare quotes I just made uh, with my fingers, but uh, I feel like I've just always kind of done what I've been interested in doing and figured that. If I found it interesting, other people might find it interesting too. So I should just put that out there in the world. But I'm trained as a historian. I did my degree in history, U.S. history at UC Berkeley back, oh, a long time ago in the 80s. Got my PhD in 1992. I did not go straight into academe. I worked for a long time as a freelance writer and thinker, and I scraped money together however I could as a you know marginally employable trans person because I came out as trans right at the end of my PhD program and that kind of made it hard for me to you know go straight into a regular professor job and I would say after about a decade of doing that it did in fact turn into something that looks like a, a career I worked for a long time as the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, made a film about the Compton's Cafeteria riot in San Francisco, an early instance of militant resistance to uh, police-based violence directed at trans and queer people. I wrote down stuff that I learned and it became a book called Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. After I went back into the academy, I tried to help build up an infrastructure for doing trans studies, like to, to provide opportunities for the, the next generation of scholars who like to try to give them something that I didn't have myself when I was coming up. And, uh, you know, that that has occupied a lot of my my working life over the last decade or so. I retired from my job as a gender studies professor at University of Arizona in 2019. I've got another book that's in the pipeline. And after that, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm still a relatively young, you know, early 60s 
person. So hopefully I've still got time for a third act, whatever that might be. That's terrific. I mean, it was a very modest way of saying that you sort of established the field of transgender history. I mean, your book is the book that people first go to, to understand transgender history. So needless to say, if you want an introduction to transgender history, Susan's book is the one to to get. So one of the things that we like to talk about on this podcast, of course, is trans health and LGBTQ plus health and gender affirming healthcare. So although our podcast is often based around questions that patients ask Ronnie, who provides gender affirming care and LGBTQ healthcare, we wondered if there was a question you ever wished your healthcare provider asked you, or alternatively, what is a really great experience you've had in a healthcare setting? Those are great questions. And I will say I have certainly over the course of my life, had some bad experiences with healthcare providers. But in general, I I feel really fortunate to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, where for years and years and years and years, I've had really good access to culturally competent healthcare. And, you know, and I realize what a privilege that is that I have access not only to healthcare, but to like, trans-affirming, culturally competent healthcare. For a lot of years, uh, my GP was herself a trans woman who like I just like didn't even have to explain things to at right. all. Um, that was great. But then I needed to change healthcare providers because of a change in employment. And my GP now is um, a, a cis lesbian woman, you know, and it feels totally cool. It's all part of the big queer family. And one of the things that that struck me when I was first doing my intake interview, my first meeting, you know, assessment intake with her is that she said, I'd like to do an organ inventory. Okay. And I thought that was a great way of saying that because, you know, what she was asking was was like, as a doctor to say, like, I kind of want to know, it's like, do I need to do a pap smear? Do I need to do a prostate exam? It's kind of like, tell me like what's going on with your body. But the way that she put it, it was just like, well, it's about what are your medical needs? It's like, what is specific about your body that there might be a thing that would be medically useful for me to know, but that it was completely decoupled from any kind of identity claims or any kind of, you know, social category. It was just, it's like, do you have these body parts or those body parts, you know? And it was just very refreshing. So for another queer person heading to their medical provider, particularly maybe a younger person who's sort of figuring these things out, do you have any questions you would encourage them to ask? No, I mean, I I don't. And I hope that's not a a, a cop out, but a couple of things. It's like, I really do think if you're going to be the doctor, it's on you, you know, to uh, educate yourself about the people who might walk through the door. You know, I also think in real life, however, that trans and queer people are, we, we, we often find ourselves in the place of needing to educate our, our care providers, but you don't know in advance what they know and what they don't know. So I think it's always a bit of a, a structured improvisation, you know, but that you as the right. care seeker, you know, need to do all of that DIY work so that you are prepared to get what you want. I think it can be helpful to bring an advocate with you. 
maybe somebody who's been to this rodeo before and uh, okay. can, you know, if you're a newcomer to accessing trans or queer specific healthcare, that somebody can maybe say what you haven't quite been able to articulate or know to ask for yourself. But then I will also say, number number three, kind of like going down the triage list, while I think it is important for trans people to sort of assert the kind of health care they want and to really advocate for themselves, we are living in such a moment of profound backlash against trans people in particular and being able to access affirming care that I think, honestly, the highest priority right now is not getting the best care, it's getting any care at all. So like, let's, let's pick our battles. And you know, I know it can feel really devastating. If you go into a care provider, and they do something that, you know, makes you feel like erased or unseen or not understood, or if it feels emotionally harmful, somehow. But I think in our current political climate, I think we trans folks should pick our battles, you know, and get the care that we need by any means necessary. Um, hope that doesn't sound too harsh. But also, I, I think find ways of engaging in self-care, you know, like find community-based resources. Because if you live, you know, in, well, a, a depressing number of states in the U.S. right now, it's like you either cannot now or will not soon be able to access care from a provider in that state. So you need to figure it out on your own and uh, you need to educate yourself in the same way, you know, you might need to educate yourself about access to reproductive health services or to access kinds of non-traditional plant-based medicines. We just like really, really, really need to figure out how to take care of ourselves before we ask other people to take care of us. You know, Ronnie and I started working on this podcast spring, summer of 2022. And the sort of issues we were talking about then were more like, how do we help people use the healthcare system to get the care that they need? And that sort of universe of options has just been closing in ever since. So the whole context in which we're having these conversations is changing. I would love to know what gives you queer joy um, or joy of any kind for that matter. You know, I, I'm a really social person. It's like I I love nothing more than a good dinner party or, you know, picnic or backyard barbecue, just, you know, hanging out with a good mix of friends and nice weather with good food and drink and conversation. Like to me, like that, that is the good life. I also really like travel. You know, I like to go to places I haven't been before. I really do think travel is just the best education in the world. And I'm a a very curious person. I just like to see how other people live. It just makes it real to me. It broadens my horizons to, to be in other places. And I really love, I mean, as much as I'm a city girl, uh, I like getting out in the country. It's like, I love, you know, being out long hikes and walks and like being out in the deserts and the mountains and at the beaches and you know nature is my church you know that's where I what I like to do but you know the the other thing I will say it's a little more maybe philosophical about that sense of queer joy is that I think for whatever 
reason. I have always just been a person who has had a really strong sense of self. I give my mother a lot of credit for that. I think she raised me to be a very strong person. And that, you know, while I've certainly had questions or, you know, about being trans, it's like being a little kid. I knew how I felt about myself always. It's been very stable. And by the time I was around five years old, I figured out that how I felt about myself meant that other people would consider me trans because I wasn't going to grow up to be the person I thought I was going to grow up to be. You know, you know, figured out the way the whole body thing works in our culture. And I had a lot of questions about it, you know, like, oh, like, what does this mean? You know, like WTF, it's like, uh, it's like, am I mistaken? Is this wrong somehow? It's like, is something possible? Can I address it? It's like, what, what does this whole trans thing mean? But at rock bottom, I never felt shame about that. I mean, it was just how I was, you know, it's just like, it's just something so given about me. And that as I got older, that sense of the givenness of my transness, it just felt like it feels like such a gift. It's just like it is a gift from a benevolent universe that a person can be like this. And you know, the social world can be hard, but in terms of like a, a way of being, it's just like I just find it so beautiful. You know, like it's an affirmation of the fact that being is plentiful and can always be otherwise. And like, there's this constant state of emergence and becoming and to be able to feel like I manifest that and how I have learned to express the identity that the universe, you know, instilled in me, just like, what, what a great life. That's so beautiful. I think that, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about in all of these new exploding legislation attempts around kind of restricting trans identity or accessing trans care is that we're all like losing out on the richness that trans folks bring to our community. You know, there is like, there is so much beauty and diversity and, you know, it's like everybody loses. Right on. It's my highest goal to be a resource for other people's happiness. <laughs> Uh, first live you know then do everything else one of which is like manifest manifest for others you know because i i do think that trans people are you know if we make it it can be a tough road to hoe but it's like if you make it and you can actualize yourself it's like we have discovered something in our self that basically says it's like really deep change is actually possible. It's like you can not just like change yourself, but you can world otherwise. And that I think the the biggest gift that we have to give other people is sort of the message that this isn't something that's like a special characteristic of trans people, but it's like it's something that is a capacity within all of us. And, you know, see, you know, here we go. It's like you can do this. You know, you got this. I know because I got this. I mean, that's so profound, too, because I think what you're talking about is such a deep self-understanding that you had from a very young age and that so many of us struggle with well into adulthood to understand the relationship between our gender, our sexuality, our bodies, our physicality in the world, how we are physically present with others and how we feel about all of those things. And figuring that out is like 
such a weight lifted. And you see it too, when you see folks sort of go through these processes of coming out and having the affirming care they need. It's like little, little like fireworks. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. It's really, it's really beautiful. You know, speaking about your, your penchant for barbecues and dinner parties, I'm wondering if there are queer icons, either living or dead, that you hold high in your esteem or who you would invite to one of your barbecues? You know, I, I, uh, there's just so many to choose from. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like I do this for a living. It's like I write about the history. And so there's just so many people out there, but, um, maybe a kind of unsung hero. I mean, unsung for a lot of people as this person named Polly Murray, Polly with an I, who, you know, I kind of think of as the, maybe the most influential person in the 20th century that most people have never heard of, that they were um, a person of mixed racial and ethnic heritage. They were a person who, you know, we would call non-binary now, but that they were this brilliant legal theorist. They did the legal research that was both behind some of the legislative strategy of the civil rights movement. It's like their analysis of segregation in the South is what Thurgood Marshall drew on in Brown v. Board of Education. Murray's ideas about needing to pay attention both to sex and gender as well as race to think about the situation of Black women in the South is where we get concept of intersectionality that is such a buzzword today. Kimberly Crenshaw, who um, coined that term, she credits Polly Murray with that concept. And one of the things I find so inspiring about Murray's work is that even though they had already been well-known in some aspects of their life, it's like their non-binariness was not something that was generally acknowledged by the people who celebrated them. And that it just tickles me to think that rather than trans and non-binary people in the present finding these feminist tools or these tools from, you know, so-called critical race theory uh, and finding that they're applicable to our lives. It's like to know that the person who's like kind of at the root of developing some of these concepts brought that genderqueer, non-binary, trans-ish perspective to bear on their own thought. And that has been profoundly influential, you know, in the social movements of the 20th century and afterwards. But, you know, sort of more more fun stuff. You know, it's like I, I love all those pop musicians who, you know, li live their gender expansiveness out loud and in public for all the world to see. You know, I mean, people like Little Richard or Jackie Shane or Jane County, David Bowie, Prince. I mean, it's just like there's just, there's just something that is so affirming, you know, and the, you know, back, back to the joy question is like that they transmit a sense of joy and their gender expansiveness is something that is part of that, part of what makes you want to, you know, get on your feet and dance, you know, and that I think, especially for younger people, I mean, just seeing these kind of like pop culture people, you know, I mean, the people I was mentioning were people from my generation, but like people who, 
you know, do similar kinds of things today. I just think it's so important for younger people to like see something in the media where they're like, that looks fun, you know, and latch on to it. Do you have a really weird question for us? Well, uh, I was just going to say, so why, why are you doing this podcast? <laughs> That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. I think the short answer is that after 30 years of having conversations with each other about what we didn't really know what to call it first, but turned out to be a combination of feminism and queerness and interests in politics and how the world works, we both actually learned enough in our respective professions to have the conversation in a new way, but still doing it as friends who've been having this conversation in various forms for 30 years. And the other answer to this is that we were in a WhatsApp group with a bunch of the other friends from camp who more or less said, you know, get a room. But, you know, it was like, <laughs> shut up already and get a podcast and like stop dominating the, the chat with this back and forth about whatever is going on in your head. So, so does that sound about right to you, Ronnie? Yeah. And because, you know, we had so much time on our hands that we were just, <laughs> let's we were looking something for else. Some, some way to fill it. Yeah. <laughs> Was it was it a, a pandemic project or did it come before that? It's like a late, late pandemic project. Yeah. So we've known each other a long time. And then I'm in, you know, eastern Pennsylvania, Ronnie's in Wisconsin. We somehow figured out that we were both pregnant at the same time. And we ended up, well, you went into labor. I was induced into labor the same day. So our children entered the world on the same day and we'd been sort of bonding over this experience with one another throughout it, so which sort of added a whole new dimension to our conversations about bodies and sexuality and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. it was very special. Well, like the best projects, it seems like it's just something that emerged organically from the lives that you're actually living. That's true. It's been brewing for a while. <laughs> what are your favorite daily rituals? Okay. Every day that I am home with my partner, I get up and I make breakfast in bed for both of us. That's adorable. <laughs> you know, people tell me that. But it's just like I, I like to start out my day with just, you know, a little mitzvah, you know, that I do for somebody. And then it feels good, you know, so we like I'll make breakfast. We'll have our things that we like to eat and coffee and read the newspaper and have some snuggle time and, you know, just sort of touch base about what we're going to do today or any business that we need to sort out before we sort of get on with the rest of, of whatever it is that we're doing. And I just, you know, I do, I find it a very grounding ritual. So that would be my favorite daily ritual. That sounds like a lovely way to start the day. Yeah. It's a combination of sort of first that, well, that sounds just like adding a bit of luxury to your life, but also a really nice form of self-care. And Susan, we're curious, what is on your nightstand right now to be read? Or are you watching any movies that you're really enjoying? Whenever I'm, I'm not writing or teaching or whatever, I do like to curl up with a, a novel. The last ones I read, there's a novel by Julie Atsuka called The Swimmers, a little short novel. I read it in the afternoon. Maybe that's why I finished it, which is basically it's like it's a daughter's perspective on her mother's Alzheimer's. And, you know, it just it really hit close to home for me because that was my experience with my mother. She had a very gradual uh, departure from this plane of existence. And I just thought Julie's book 
absolutely nailed what that experience was like. I'm currently reading a, a new book. I'm right in the middle of it. It's called After Sappho by a friend of mine, actually, Selby uh, Wynn Schwartz. It's her debut novel. It was long listed for the Booker Prize. And it's a, a, it's a very writerly kind of hybrid book composed of lots of little vignettes about lesbian and feminist writers. And kind of the conceit of the book, I would say, is that Sappho's poetry exists only in fragments. I mean, there are no complete Sappho works left. And so this book is like lots of little fragments of lesbian and feminist lives that add up into something that, you know, takes shape sort of in the wake of Sappho after Sappho. So that's very fun. So I would say more than reading, it's like I, I find that watching film and television occupies a different part of my brain. And it's like sometimes after a busy day, it's kind of the amount of bandwidth and attention span that that I have. So my um, sort of pop culture TV streaming media watching right now, uh, I enjoyed Shrinking, which is on Apple TV, uh, this comedy about uh, interpersonal relationships between a group of psychotherapists who share a practice. But mostly, I would say, even though I've got my what I kind of think of as like my, you know, junk food, fast food TV watching that in my heart of hearts, I'm I'm a secret art house movie nerd and cinephile. And I, I love my my Criterion channel. My partner and I are going to go in a couple of weeks to Italy and Croatia for like work and play. I've got a work I need to do. We're going to squeeze in a week of vacation. And one of the things we do when we travel is like, we'll often like read and watch films from the places that we're we're going to. So there, there's not a lot of specifically Croatian films, but there's like a really amazing body of mid-20th century work from Yugoslavia, you know, sort of the, the former Yugoslavia, part of which is now Croatia. So I've been watching some Yugoslav films that I haven't seen before. One of my favorite directors is this guy Dushan Makaveev. And I, I found a film of his that I hadn't seen. It was called Innocence Unprotected from 1968. And it was this wild film where he took the very first talky movie made in the Serbian language, which was made kind of on on the sly, on the download during the Nazi occupation. And he took that film and sort of chopped it up and interspersed archival footage of the war and the occupation uh, with interviews from the people who made the film, one of whom was this kind of Harry Houdini-like acrobat performer daredevil guy who was the love interest in the film. And he interspersed footage of this guy's performances as well as, you know, documenting him as like however old he was when that film was made in 1968 as an older man still being able to, you know, bend steel with his teeth and, you know, balance on top of a unicycle on top of a stack of, you know, car tires. I mean, it's just wacky stuff. And it, you know, it's kind of this very sweet film ultimately about how people still try to make culture and have fun, like even when you're occupied by literal fascists. So that was, um, I think, a, a timely message for our own day. Absolutely. 
One of my favorite scenes from Shrinking was that there's like a two minute interaction where they're talking to their racist neighbor, Pam, where it's just so (laughs) really, no, don't say hi to Pam. We don't like Pam. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was, I thought that was great. I thought all of the characters had a lot of depth and complexity. It was ultimately very sweet and, and funny, you know, so who knew that Harrison Ford could do comedy? Before we wrap up, uh, are there any organizations out there that you want to give a shout out to? I really support all of the trans serving organizations that I know of who are doing such frontline work right now, Transgender Law Center or, uh, you know, like the, the ACLU's trans project. But honestly, right now, the, the person I'm feeling particularly happy about right now is there's a freelance journalist, Erin Reed, who um, I just think is doing some really important work. She has a Substack. She's on TikTok. She's on Twitter. She goes by Erin in the morning. And she does a lot of reporting on contemporary trans and anti-trans legislation in the U.S. has got this great tracker of you know where different bills are in different states she live streams legislative hearings she offers analysis and you know as somebody who needs to pay attention to all of this stuff for my own professional reasons i think the work that she does is just it's an incredibly valuable resource and you know she is uh, self published i mean she works based on donations and so if you know you care about the kind of work that she's doing uh, you can subscribe to her newsletter her substack so um hey Aaron, i don't i don't know you in person but i just want to just want to say if you're listening to this it's like right on you know you're doing excellent work so keep it up <laughs> we're going to try to reach out to her to make sure that she knows that she got a big shout out from you on, the, on this episode thank you so much susan for joining us you've been listening to this is probably a really weird question which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Twitter at A Really Weird Pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at Dr. Awkward MD. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening and keep on asking those questions.